Where'd everybody go? Well, folks will come back in and that will be just fine. Before we start, though, let's uh, go ahead and pray. Father, we are grateful to you for the miracle of mercy that you have deigned to love us, to regard us, to know us. to relate to us in mercy and kindness and not in judgment. All of this by a plan that you made before the ages began. It, we can hardly imagine How you knew us before we were born, before the earth was made. And that you loved us and made a rescue plan for us through your own son, Jesus. Who became a man and lived for us and died for us and now lives again for us. And now through the powerful work of your spirit, conquering hearts everywhere, showing mercy to us. Father, what can we say about this? We can hardly imagine and fathom what you've done. But we can say thank you. And we can worship you and so, Father, I pray that that is what you would summon forth from our hearts, worship and love and gratefulness and good works and transformation in our lives because of this grace towards us. So, Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law, incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I know many of you are familiar with Victor Hugo's story, Les Miserables, which it, it is a, a novel that tells the story of a convict named Jean Valjean. And if you remember in the story, Jean Valjean had gone to prison for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread. And it wasn't an easy 19 years, it was a hard 19 years, and it made him a hard, cynical man. After 19 years, he's finally released from prison. But his release from prison delivers him into yet another predicament. He's completely destitute. He has no money, he has no home, he has no one to turn to, and so... He comes upon this town, but the citizens in the town treat him with derision and contempt because nobody wants to help him because he's an ex-convict. The lone exception to this in this little town is this kindly old bishop named Muriel. 
And Bishop Muriel takes him into his own home, feeds Jean Valjean, treats Jean Valjean with dignity and respect. But in the night, as he is staying the night at the bishop's home, Jean Valjean betrays this trust, steals the bishop's valuable silverware, which was worth a lot of money, and then he flees in the night from his home. He doesn't get far. The authorities uh, catch him just and search him, and they find that he's got something on his person that he shouldn't have, this valuable silverware. And so they take him back to the city. They connect him back to the bishop. So he's caught, arrested, brought back to the bishop's home. All the bishop has to do is to testify against him, and Valjean would be returned to prison. But instead of condemning Jean Valjean, the bishop tells the police that he gave the silverware to Valjean as a gift. And so Valjean is, is freed and forgiven just on the bishop's word. But before Valjean leaves and after the authorities have gone and Jean Valjean is alone with the bishop, the bishop makes Valjean promise to use the silver to change his life and to become an honest man. And the bishop says this, and this is to me the, the clincher. The bishop takes him, he looks at him straight in the eyes, and he says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. This is what happens at the beginning of the story. The rest of the story is the unfolding of a life, Jean Valjean's life, a life that's been transformed by this one act of grace. He goes off to a new city. He takes the silverware. He, he uses the money to buy a factory. He, he uses it to actually produce and innovate this new product that brings prosperity to this little village. His life was completely changed by what the bishop had done when the bishop had him dead to rights. He becomes this tender-hearted philanthropist. He's humble about himself, but he's extravagant about his love. He loves like he was loved. He even, um, his love goes towards this prostitute who's dying. And he cares for her right up until the time that she dies. And after she dies, he promises to care for her little girl, Cosette. And the rest of the story is about his care for the little girl, Cosette. But every part of his life is transformed after the bishop purchases his soul with the silver. You know, the apostle Peter says this. He says, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. I wonder sometimes if we realize just how precious was the price that was paid for us. And I wonder if we realize just how low God had to stoop to rescue us. God had us dead to rights. Isn't that what we believe? He didn't owe us anything except for judgment. And yet, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do we realize just what God did for us in Christ? The reason that we have to ask this question is because often there's a big gap 
between the way God treats sinners and the way we treat sinners. So ask yourself this. Is your treatment of sinners a reflection in any way of the way that God treats sinners, the way that he's treated you? Does your treatment of people who sin against you look like the way that God treats sinners who have sinned against him? Do you exhibit long-suffering and mercy to those who sin against you? Like God has treated you even though you sinned against him? Or do you treat them with harshness and with contempt? If you've experienced the grace of God, then the grace of God will be evident in your relationships with other sinners. If that evidence is lacking, then so is the grace of God lacking in you. Have you been changed by the grace of God? If so, can we see the evidence? Can you see the evidence? That's what Paul is getting at in this last chapter in the book of Titus. If you remember back in Titus chapter 2 in verses 11 and 12, Paul says that the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Paul, in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, he fleshed this out for older, and older men and older women. He fleshed out what the grace of God looks like in, the li- like in the lives of younger men and younger women and slaves and all the rest. As all of these Christians have been transformed by the, rela- the grace of God, their relationships with each other within the church have been transformed as well. And he tells them what they're supposed to look like. Now, in chapter 3... He's going to talk about how grace transforms our relationships with those outside of the church. Relationships with people who are not necessarily in here, but those who are outside. Paul says that grace changes us in at least four ways. So there's another different thing about this today's church. I've got four points, not three. Um, So grace changes us in at least four ways. This is where we're going here. Grace makes us ready for good works. Grace makes us humble and generous. Grace makes us unified and disciplined. And grace makes us fruitful. So let's take a look first of all how grace makes us ready for good works. And this is verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work work. Now, when Paul tells Titus, remind them, he's referring back to the, the ones that he, who've, who've experienced the grace of God back in verse 11. In other words, he's telling, uh, he, he's speaking these words of reminder with reference to the congregation in Crete. So this is aimed at Christians in particular. He's telling Christians how they're supposed to relate to those outside of the church, non-Christians. Verse 1 specifies what the Christian's relationship is supposed to be to rulers and authorities. Now, those terms, the rulers and authorities, are the same terms that are used elsewhere to refer to governing authorities. So this is talking about how we relate to the government. And the assumption is, is that the government is pagan. This is the Roman Empire when Paul wrote this. It's a pagan government. And so we can relate to this. Oftentimes, Christians are living under a government that is not Christian, and we have to relate to them in ways that reflect what Christ has done in us. 
Paul is saying that Christians must be submissive to the governing authorities and to obey them and to be ready for every good work, which includes doing right by what the government uh, commands, but also I think the good works go beyond that to more broadly doing good works. But the point is here is that grace transforms us into good citizens. If you are a Christian, it is no virtue for you to be a thorn in the side of your government. As much as you can, you should be a faithful citizen. Now, providentially, next week is April 15th. It's coming up. We have to think about this all the time, right? We are going to be rendering up our taxes to whom they are owed. We pay our taxes even when we don't want to. Tomorrow, I've got jury duty. It is not convenient, okay? I'm going tomorrow to jury duty instead of to work. This is saying you should obey the laws and support justice and order as it is enforced by our government. And when we do these good works, we are bearing witness to the fact that God's grace has transformed us. So God's grace makes us into good citizens insofar as we can strengthen good justice and order in a government that's doing that, we are supposed to obey that. But it also says in verse 2, look at this, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, when Paul says to speak evil of no one and to show perfect courtesy toward all people, no one and all people indicates that he's not merely talking about our relationship to government at this point, but he's talking about our relationships to all people broadly outside of the church. All people who are not Christians who are still in their sins. How are we supposed to treat them? He sums it up in four phrases. He says to speak evil of no one, which means you don't slander them. You don't revile them. You don't defame them. This doesn't mean that you can never Point out evil or injustice in the world. Go look at Ephesians 5.11. It doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that you don't slander and speak ill of your neighbor. Just because you think little of them. You don't do that. Our speech is not marked by putting down our neighbors. Who we may view to be different than us. Because they are not a Christian. You don't speak evil of anyone. Second phrase here is to avoid quarreling which literally means to be without battle. It describes a person who's disinclined to fight, somebody who's peaceful, someone who's not contentious. So grace means that you are not walking around with a chip on your shoulder. You don't relish fights with your unbelieving neighbor. Rather, you are looking to build bridges, not to burn bridges to your neighbor. So you're slow to take an offense. You are long-suffering because you are building bridges, not burning them with your neighbor. Third thing here, to be gentle, which means it's, it's a word that's interesting here because it's a word that means not insisting on every right of letter of law or custom. So the idea is like uh, yielding or being tolerant of someone, even though they may transgress some social norm or some norm that, that you would hold to maybe as a Christian. Another way to think of it is as um, maybe gracious or forbearing 
with those outside of the church. So if you're a Christian and you're treating people like this, you are a person not who, you you don't wink at sin or celebrate sin, but you're a person who's clear-headed about sin and righteousness, but who nevertheless doesn't come off as judgmental or pharisaical. You got to do both those things at once. That's what's going on here. So I, tried to, I was trying to think of an example of this. I, I, the best example I could come up with is this. You're supposed to be like your grandma to you. Someone who's well aware of all of your faults and is even willing to confront you at times with your faults if you have a grandmother like that. But who nevertheless loves you and genuinely enjoys you in spite of all your issues and wants to make you cookies and do things for you and be with you. She just loves you, right? That's the kind of generosity that you're called to have towards sinners. All of us are called to have that. Clear-eyed, loving, forbearing. And then the last phrase here is to show perfect courtesy towards them which is another interesting phrase uh, because it means something like you're not supposed to be overly impressed with your own sense of self-importance. Rather, you're, you're supposed to be viewing the needs and interests of others above your own. The New American Standard translates it as showing every consideration for all men. So ask yourself, do you have anyone like this in your life? Someone who's large-hearted and generous towards you no matter what you do? You ever had anybody like that in your life? Do you have someone who's treated you that way? Someone that you can just unload on them. They will listen to you and care about you as if your burdens were their own burdens. Maybe a mother or a father, perhaps a grandmother or a grandfather, maybe an old friend, maybe a new friend. I don't know. You ever had somebody that treated you this way? Somebody that, if you felt like you needed to cry about something, you could cry in front of them, like an ugly cry. Did you know that that is what all of us are supposed to be to our friends and neighbors who don't know Christ? They understand that we're clear-headed about sin and righteousness. They get that, but they also know that we love them. And when the chips are down in their life, they come to you. Because they know they can, and they know you'll listen. That's what we're supposed to be to the outsiders. Not clucking our tongues at them, but with our arms open to them. In short, we're supposed to love them. We're supposed to love them in the same way that we have been loved. We're supposed to show grace to them in the same way that we have been graced by God. Are you doing that? Jesus said, let let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. This is what's going to draw people to see the God that we are proclaiming to them if we love them in this way. So is your light on? If your good works of love aren't on, your light isn't on. And grace makes us ready for good works. That's what verses 1 and 2 are all about. It's going to be manifest in the way that we love our neighbor. Second thing is this. Grace not only makes us ready for good works, but it also makes us humble and generous. Look at verse 3. 
It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Now, think about this for a second. What does verse 3 have to do with verse 2? Verse 2 is calling us to love our neighbor, to do good to them. Verse 3, I think, is tackling an objection that often rises up in our hearts when we think about loving our neighbor. Sometimes our neighbors are not so lovable. Sometimes they make stupid decisions. Sometimes they pridefully defy what the boss has told them to do. Sometimes they're off into all kinds of false religions and spiritualities. Sometimes they are so carried away by their own lusts that you can hardly stand to be around them. Some of them are just plain cussed. And they have bad attitudes and they're selfish. And sometimes they even treat you pretty shabbily. And so they're not lovable and you don't sometimes feel inclined towards loving them. And so look at the logic of what Paul is saying here. Verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Do you see the logic here of what Paul is saying? No matter what it is about your neighbor that makes you disinclined to love your neighbor, you are not any better than them apart from grace. You're just not. Before you came to Christ, you had all the same issues that they have, at least in seed form. And you'd still be mired in your issues if you weren't saved by the grace of Jesus. You think about that? That means that when you look at your neighbor and you begin to feel a kind of distance from them because of the difference of your being a Christian and them not being one, when you look at them and you begin to feel that distance and if you begin to feel a kind of disgust creeping up in your heart, Paul is saying that you need to remember you are not so different from them. If you are a Christian, it's a miracle. If you are different than them, it is because of mercy. Do you believe that? I think we forget that. Any of you remember that song, Miracle of Mercy? You remember that song back in the 90s? I'm not going to quit my day job. I just want you to be prepared for this. Um, <laughs> all right, I'll try it. If the truth was known and the light was shown on every hidden part of my soul, most would turn away, shake their head and say, he still has such a long way to go. If the truth was known, you'd see that the only good in me is Jesus. Oh, it's Jesus. If the walls could speak of the times I've been weak, when everybody thought I was strong, 
Could I show my face if it weren't for the grace of the one who's known the truth all along? If the walls could speak, they'd say that my only hope is the grace of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, and oh, the goodness and the grace in him. He takes it all and makes it mine. He causes his light in me to shine. And he loves me with a love that never ends. Just as I am, not as I do. Could this be real? Could this be true? This could only be a miracle. This could only be the miracle of mercy. You know that song? Man, we got to know that song. This is really important, y'all. You and I, we don't have any room to be looking down on anyone or despising anyone because whatever you may see in someone else that you think you should despise would be you apart from grace. We should be humiliated when we contemplate our own Christless fallenness. You see what I'm saying? I think this is the spirit behind everything that Paul writes. He never got over this. In fact, if you look at verse 4, look what he says. Think about what we were apart from Christ. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of work done by, works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a pristine statement of the grace of God towards us in Christ. It is so rich with gospel truth. Some even believe that all of verses 4 through 7 are an early Christian confession, perhaps that Christians spoke when they were about to be baptized. They would stand there and perhaps by themselves or with the whole congregation, say this together. This is what we believe Christ has done for us. And then they would go down into the waters. I could do a whole sermon unpacking the doctrine of salvation contained in verses 4 through 7. I'm not going to do that. What I want to focus on is why Paul puts this statement here as he does after verse 3. All of verses 4 through 7. Verse 3 talks about our lowly estate before coming to Christ. Verse 4, in contrast, talks about our great salvation, our inheritance now that we've come to Christ. God saved us, washed away our sins, regenerated us. It means he made us born again. He's renewing us through the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit within us. He's justified us. He's made us heirs of eternal life. 
God did all of this for us, but look what he says in verse 5. God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God saved us and gave us all of his own goodness, not because we were good, because we weren't good, not because we're lovable. We weren't lovable. In fact, verse 3 says that we were hateable. God saved us and graced us, not because of anything worthy in us. He saved us because of his own mercy toward us. God loved us and cared for us because of his own character and virtue, not because of our character and virtue. Bottom line on this, you see what Paul's getting at here? Paul's saying we are supposed to love and care for sinners in the same way that God loves and cares for sinners. God loves unlovely people. We must love unlovely people. God gives his grace to sinful people. We must be gracious to sinful people. God laid down his life for people who hated him. We must lay down our lives sometimes for people who hate us. We must care for them, even if they don't care for us back. That's how God has loved us and won us to himself. And that's how we must love sinners and win them over to Christ. If God loves this way, then that is how we must love as well. Do you see the logic of what Paul's saying there? He's not just throwing in a little, you know, theologizing on salvation. He's saying, you got all of this apart from any works that you had done. God hadn't waited you to clean up your life before he loved you. That's how you've got to love other people. That's hard. But that's the gospel, isn't it? Isn't that what it does to us? How it changes us? It gets us to do things that are impossible. It's a miracle. Paul says in verse 8, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Look at good works in light of the context. Remember verse 2? Good works to those on the outside. Now he says devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable. For whom? For people. All those people that are not inside this room with us right now. We've got to love in this way because it's good for them. They might not even feel that it's good for them, but it's good for them if they see the light of the gospel in the way that we love them. So Paul's saying to these Christians and to us, we've got to do these good works for unbelieving neighbors because that's how God has treated us. Grace makes us ready for good works because it makes us humble and generous. Do you see what he's saying here? When you have a certain right view of yourself and right view of God, it changes every, the way you think about other people. You remember how awe, awed Paul was about his own conversion? When Paul, this is how Paul talked about his own conversion. It was like the miracle of mercy, right? He says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Though formerly I was a blasphemer and a persecutor, an insolent opponent, you remember the fact that he was on his way to persecute Christians when God saved him. He hated them 
breathing out murderous threats on his way to, to persecute Christians. And he says, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Did you catch that? Not all these other people out there. And he just listed a whole host of sins, homosexuality, immorality, all these different sins. He says, I'm the worst out of all of them. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul looked at his life not as an example of achievement, but as an example of grace. And the, his great sin just shows to the world what God can do to a sinner and how he can change them and claim them for his own. Do you see how odd Paul is by the grace of God? He views himself as the chief of sinners. Even though he was an apostle, he's still floored that the grace of God stooped as low as him. I'm just wondering if this is the perspective that we have. I think our problem tends to be that we have an exalted view of ourselves and a diminished view of of God. That way of thinking is backwards and it diminishes our capacity for love. That's the point. Because if you have an exalted view of yourself and a diminished view of God, you are going to think that your own needs and rights are at the center of the universe and not God's. And you're going to think that God exists to meet your needs and your rights. And so you're not going to love people well. You're just going to serve your own needs and your own rights. But if we're going to love our neighbors as God has called us to love them, we're going to have to get real about who we are and who we were apart from Christ and about how lavish God has been and his mercy towards us. And we're going to have to not ever get over that. We're going to have to come here every week and keep talking about it to each other so we don't ever forget it. That is, by the way, what we're trying to do here. Okay, we can't forget this only when our view of ourselves is small and our view of God is big. will we even begin to have the capacity to love as we have been loved. And only then will the people that we're trying to reach with the gospel see the light that we're trying to shine. So grace makes us ready for good works. It makes us humble and generous. And then the third thing is grace makes us unified and disciplined. Look quickly at verse nine. Paul says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So this is basically Paul commanding um, Titus and the congregation in Crete and us to avoid false teaching. It's the same false teaching that he warned about in chapter 1, the teaching that was coming from the insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, those of the circumcision party. It's the teaching coming from those who profess to know God, but they deny him by their deeds. You remember from chapter 1. Paul says here to avoid all of that, all that teaching they're trying to spew into the church, 
to avoid the foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. We're not sure what the false teaching was, but it had something to do with distorting the law of God, perhaps the genealogies in the Old Testament. It was a distortion of the word of God that undermines the gospel that Paul had preached to them. But I want you to notice the connection between verse 9 and verse 8. In verse 9, Paul says that this kind of teaching is what? At the end, unprofitable and worthless. Unprofitable. That's a contrast to what he said in verse 8 about good works. Did you notice that? Good works are what? Profitable. This means that false teaching undermines the testimony of good works. Your good works of love and kindness and mercy towards others is undermined by false teaching. And your good works of mercy will be to no avail if the congregation that you come from is marked by heresy and and division. Do you see the point here? That's why Paul suggests such a a drastic measure in verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division, somebody who's giving this false teaching in the church, after warning him once and then twice, then have nothing more to do with him. The person stirring up this false teaching the kind that undermines Paul's message, Paul says that after two warnings, he's got to be removed from the congregation. You say, wow, that's harsh. Is it really? It's what Jesus told us to do in Matthew 18. Remember that? Go to a guy in private. If he doesn't respond, you take some witnesses. If he doesn't respond to that warning, you take it to the congregation. He doesn't respond to that warning. What do you do? You put him out. That's what Jesus told us to do. Paul's just saying the same thing here. When it comes to false teachers why verse 11 knowing that such a person is warped and sinful he's self-condemned notice that paul says the person is self-condemned if the false teacher refuses to repent after repeated warnings his condemnation is his own fault he must bear the brunt of excommunication from the fellowship because of his own obstinacy in sin so our unity in the truth and in our discipline in this church, is a testimony to the grace of God at work in us. You ever think about that? If we're not unified, and then we try to go out here and try to tell people to come to Christ, and the grace of God will change them, and then they look at us, and we're fighting with each other, and hating each other, and divided from one another, just like everybody else, we don't unify around the same truth, but we're following different truths, that will completely undermine our witness to the community. And so Paul's saying, you've got to deal with that kind of division when it comes up. You can't let it go. What if somebody came in our church teaching these kinds of things that undermine the gospel? What if it were somebody emerged in our church, somebody that's here now that we already all know and maybe trust, and they start getting off a little bit? What, what if it were me? What if, in, in, I don't, let's say I just don't do it here in the pulpit, but I'm a little sneaky about it. Just in my Sunday school class and maybe small group, I start teaching. You know, if you really want to be right with God, you've got to get your kids at home school. You're sinning if you don't have your kids at home school. And I start to push that. You think, you think that might cause a little bit of division in our church? 
You think it might set the homeschoolers against the private schoolers and the public schoolers? You think it might blow up the unity in our church? You think it might lead the homeschoolers away from trusting in Christ to trusting in their homeschooling? What's the loving thing to do if I were to start teaching such a thing? The world tells you love equals affirmation. You just got to affirm it. It'll cause division if you come and confront me. That's what the world says. You just got to let me be me. Denny, you do you, buddy. That's what the world would say. Paul is saying that's not loving nor unifying for a church. The longer you let me or somebody like that go, the worse it's going to divide the church, the more entrenched my own heart is going to become to my, in my own error. It's neither loving nor unifying for the church to leave me be. The source of division is not the church's discipline. It's the deviation from the church's teaching. That's the source of the division. And that's why the church takes it so seriously. We want to have a testimony to those who are outside, which means we present a unified message. And when one of us starts to get off, we, we bring each other back in, don't we? The discipline is not, we, we don't want it to go to excommunication. We want to bring each other back in. That's the point. It's the most loving thing that you can do is to confront it. And so he's saying grace makes us unified and disciplined. Last thing, grace makes us fruitful. Let me read to you these final verses. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. faith. Grace be with you all. These last verses are the conclusion of the letter, and they contain some items of personal concern. Verse 12, Paul, he's sending Artemis or Tychicus to relieve Titus so that Titus can come to Paul. Verse 13, he's encouraging Titus to support fellow missionaries named Zenos and Apollos. Verse 15 is a final greeting specifying that his greeting is for those who love us in the faith. It's another expression of unity. And then he finishes with a final benediction. But, but look at verse 14, one last exhortation to God's people. We'll focus on that. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. You see that phrase again? Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Paul defines good works as fruitfulness. And fruitfulness involves looking after one another within the church to meet urgent needs. Which means we have to know each other. And it means we have to know where there are urgent needs. They're not always going to be financial needs, but sometimes they are. Sometimes we're going to have members that we know, like Miss Juanita. She's been told she has two weeks to live. And no treatments. She doesn't want any treatments. We got to know where the needs are, and we got to meet those needs. And that is communicating the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus to the world when we love each other in that way.
Grace makes us ready for good works. It makes us humble and generous. It makes us unified and disciplined. And it makes us fruitful in that way. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spot, the spotless blood of Christ. Do you realize the precious price paid for you, a sinner unworthy and undeserving and unlovable? And do you realize that God loved you anyway? And he sent his son to die for you so that you could be forgiven of your sins. He raised his son up after three days so that you could have eternal life with him. And none of this comes to any of us because of anything that we did to deserve it. It only comes upon the basis of God's mercy and grace in Christ. We're here because God brought us here. If you've known that grace, shouldn't that grace be evident in how you love your neighbor? It should be. This text says it must be. If you're here and you have never tasted this grace, consider this our invitation to you to come into it. You say, well, I'm not good enough for this. We know. Neither were we. You can come on in. How do I come in? You just believe in the Lord Jesus, that he was crucified and raised for you. You repent of your sin, and you give your life to him. The Bible says you do that. He'll save you out of sheer mercy. If you haven't done that, you should do it now. Father, I pray that you would conform us to the image of your own dear son, that you will somehow sustain in us awe about the miracle of mercy performed in us. So, Father, I pray that you would do this among us as a body of believers and in each and every one of us. Lord, do it for our good and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.